everyone, and welcome to the Tulsa World Opinion video podcast. I'm Jenny Graham, editorial editor at the Tulsa World. I'm Bobby Set, editorial writer and columnist, and oh, my aching back, but hey. Oh, please, please. Yeah. I just spent two days at the Charlotte, North Carolina airport. I would not recommend that to anyone. I'm going to avoid Charlotte forever now. It was a from hell trip. I spent time this week, most of my week, this is my first full day back. I went to Georgetown University to participate in a one-day conference on Tulsa's pre-K. And for those of you who follow this, this area, um, Oklahoma was one of the first states to implement universal pre-K, which are the four-year-olds in public schools. A lot of people don't realize that most other states don't offer this. And when Oklahoma did that, Tulsa also enhanced its four-year-old, its uh, targeted programs in Head Start. We built edge care centers. And it was sort of this perfect storm. Uh, research started then, about 20 years ago. And so for the last 20 years, researchers from Georgetown and then some others from different parts of the country, I know Harvard came in at one point and partnered with them. Uh, we have researchers here at OU Tulsa and TU that have partnered with Georgetown. And they've done research for 20 years on the effectiveness of these programs. And it's, and so they sort of celebrated this. And I went and, and sat in on it and it was remarkable. And one of the things that I came away with, first of all, they released five new studies, which was because now they can look at the kids they started with 20 years later, they're in college. So we can actually look at some of the adult behaviors and track how over time some of these skills maybe in preschool laid a foundation. But I didn't realize the difference it made in the research academia that it was a cross-disciplinary, gets in the weeds a little bit, we had public policy people in that Georgetown Research Department working with psych the psychology department and they partnered and created this whole new way of doing research in this area. And so they had researchers from across the country saying people look to Tulsa's work here as this cutting edge research on this very unique program. And I don't know, it's just, I've been hearing so many bad things about Oklahoma lately that I'm sitting there for, you know, this day going, wow, we did something right. We're doing <laughs> something. I mean, you don't hear that often, right, Bob? Mm -hmm. Not that often. Did you get a sense of where, from the people that were there, where Oklahoma might be if we had not have done this? You know, that's interesting. They didn't really get into that. But I think you can infer that when you look at these studies over time, because at the beginning, it's all like short term, mm -hmm. you know, you're looking at, you know, kindergarten to third grade or kindergarten to fifth. But at each moment along the last two decades, you show gains, particularly like everyone gained is the way the researchers have said. At worst, maybe kids didn't show a difference. It was what they call a null or neutral. So the kids weren't any better, but they weren't worse off. No one ever was harmed or their skills got worse because they went to pre-K. But at each step, they showed that while everyone might benefit, the benefits were greater for children of low-income families, um, Black and Hispanic families, no matter what they were studying, because some of it was academic, some of it was, they started looking at what they call self-regulation, which are skills like a teacher gives a direction and the kid can follow it, or they can communicate with colleagues, 
um, it's like behavior kind of things. And, th- and what's interesting, they looked at those are what they call a sleeper effect, which is like in the short term, they didn't see much difference in those kind of things, those skills. But then they emerged in high school, like middle school, high school, when some of these kids were taking um, more advanced classes. And they found kids in the pre-K were more likely to take advanced classes. So those skills sort of built on each other, built on itself. And so part of that self-regulation is um, kind of work persistence that when you're faced with a challenge, can a kid work through that? And they're finding that help. So when you think of if if we didn't have those, those kids wouldn't have had those skills. We don't know whether they would have ever gotten them or maybe they would have had to get get that through some other way. But um, the, the latest studies, which I found interesting, the kids that went through pre-K had a higher rate of college enrollment. So compared to their peers, more kids went to college and more, this was an odd one. They looked at voting, like how many of those kindergartners from 2005, 2006, registered to vote and and voted and like much higher than their peers. So, but here's the thing, and this is a frustrating thing with politics. And we did bring this up. How do you convince lawmakers to do something long-term like that? Yeah. So if you say, if you do these things now, 20 years from now, we'll be better off. Nobody thinks like that. Um, I mean, think about like the business world, it's quarter to quarter. Right. And the election cycle, it's two, four, six years. That's, mm-hmm. and nobody's thinking that far ahead anyway. It's usually two. Right. And so, what they said the next area that they would like to look at, and this gets, and, and uh, this research apparently is some of the, the hardest that they've ever had to sort of approach and model by what they were measuring over time and just all these different questions. So it's, it's pretty dense and rich. And so, so like I know the University of Virginia, there's a researcher there that's trying to do that with their pre-K system, trying to model it in the same way. But it's the next area they would like to look at, there was an economist that talked about the, um, the cost benefit. And it's like, yeah, we double, triple, maybe even quadruple, like for every dollar we put in, what we get out 20, 60 years later. He said, what'll be... Now you have to see sort of the grad, the college graduation rates and then earnings like of these kids. And so we were kind of joking, you know, these kids that started this 20 years ago, like we're going to hound them for the rest of their lives. Like, okay, how much are you making? What, what is this? But, but it's interesting in that it showed, because one of the things you, you hear about people who are against the idea of universal pre-K programs is this idea of fade out that the gains made between, you know, pre-K and third grade fades out. Well, these researchers are saying that's not necessarily true, that some of it is, if you think of it like two lines, like the pre-K kids were out achieving, and then the kids, eventually the other kids that didn't, they sort of catch up to. So they say they converge about third to fifth grade, that it's not that the pre-K kids were fading out, it's that some other kids were catching up. And they're arguing, so that shows that this is working, but also they see long-term, some of those other type of things are what's going to pay off. So, um, so I'd say it was, it was very interesting to, to hear that Tulsa 
had been doing some things that are really good, especially good for, for families who are traditionally marginalized, you know, and it shows that this is a good direction. So it, it was, it was kind of a positive, it was a very positive experience. Amazing what happens when you invest in education. <laughs> yes, it is. And uh, we, they did talk a little bit about, I know this, and it was, I was in my absence, but we, we were in communication, but the editorial this week about the DHS giving childcare grants of $10,000, because we have a have a crisis right now with childcare, right? In Oklahoma, no mm -hmm. one, it's a workforce issue. For so long, and I saw this, childcare was viewed as a woman's issue, as a social service, instead of looking at it like education. And so DHS is trying to, and right now you can't find, like if you have a baby to a to three-year-old, it's hard to find childcare. And if you can find it, and especially in the Tulsa area, Talking to all my my friends that have kids this area, I mean, you're looking at eight hundred to twelve hundred dollars a month for infant care. So people are just staying out of the workforce. Yeah, and so it's a workforce issue. And so DHS is giving out grants for providers to start up, and it's ten thousand dollars, and it's it's good. I'm glad DHS is being proactive and doing something. But let's be honest, that's not very much money when you're talking about kids and childcare and starting up a business because it's all in personnel. And so you might be able to start up, but to have longevity, we're really gonna need more. I don't think this, the government alone can't, can't fix this problem. So, I mean, when you read that story, Bob, because you, you had a hand in crafting that editorial, what, what were your thoughts on it? Well, I thought that, um, I mean, I was, Kind of shocked that we had that money just sitting around to do that. So ten thousand dollars per kid uh, for these for these childcare centers. <clears throat> I thought, like you, I mean, it wasn't a type of thing that's like, okay, this is going to fund you for a year. That's not what it's designed to do. It's designed to give you just like a little bit of extra stimulus to get your operation going. The term that popped out to me was childcare deserts. Uh -huh. And I thought that was kind of an interesting way to look at it. Um, we've talked about food deserts and stuff like that before, where people just don't have access to places that sell fresh food, good nutrition, that kind of thing. But a childcare desert kind of implies something completely different in that, as you mentioned, this being a workforce issue, and we've obviously in the Tulsa area and Tulsa County was one of the counties that was going to be in the mix here, but I saw a lot of rural counties too. And we've seen so many things that are holding back economic opportunity and growth in rural areas, broadband being one of them. And this, this is another one. If you're a young parent, you know, young family, barely getting by on one income and stuff like that, and you've got a couple of kids, you're stuck if you can't find a place for childcare if you want to get the other person working. So I definitely like the proactive nature of that kind of thing. Um, I'm curious um, what you were thinking um, when we were talking about this a little bit of what more needs to be done on top of this. Yeah, you know, and it was brought up among, you know, the conversation. Half the people at in George at the Georgetown conference were from Tulsa. And all of the the and these are the experts in the field were dubious that this was going to 
have the kind of long lasting effect that people want. It certainly is not going to solve it. But, you know, they're also concerned with, you know, the quality of early education, because this yeah. is not babysitting. I mean, if you're leaving your child with someone for eight hours a day, you want to make sure that they're getting a quality experience. They're not in front of a TV, that they're getting some, even with infants, they're finding science data and social data are all showing the environment matters. It's the, you know, the calmness of what they're being exposed to. It's the different stimuli. Kids learn from the moment they're born. And science is showing a lot of the brain is developed between birth and three. So that's a foundation kind of thing. And so they're concerned. And I know DHS has a a quality program incentive. Mm -hmm. But the reason that the pre-K happened and that Tulsa is on the map is because we have philanthropists that are that have prioritized this. The George Kaiser Family Foundation has prioritized early education. And you had the Chamber of Commerce back in the 90s. The Tulsa Chamber made this a legislative priority. I think you you we can't do anything with government alone on this. So I think that businesses are going to have to get real with themselves and realize that they're going to have to put in some investment too. And yeah. they may have to come up with programs that provide some sort of childcare benefit, however they want to make that. Um, if you want to get more people and you can say, hey, we're going to pay for half your childcare, or we're going to work with a childcare center to you know, guarantee a certain amount of slots go to our employees, mm-hmm. there are going to have to be different models that'll pop up to not only encourage more accessibility, but then make it quality care. Because it's great we have four-year-old programs, but if we have a bunch of four-year-olds showing up and they haven't had you know, the kind of foundation and experience that they need. And while, yes, I, I love the idea of staying home with your kids, you know, because there's this whole nanny state pushback. We're not talking about that. For people who want to go back to work and they can't because of this, that's a problem. For people mm-hmm. who want to stay home with their kids for the first years, that's great too. The whole idea is that we're at whatever parents choose, they get a quality experience. And so, for so long, we just looked at childcare as, is it safe? Well, of course we want it safe, but then what else happens? What, what experiences are kids getting? So, yeah. um, but I think business is going to have to really be honest with themselves. And so looking at paying their workers, but also looking at what are, the, for the people that aren't working, what are the, the obstacles? And this is a big one. So, yes. you know, and, and DHS starting this, trying to get people at least in the industry is a good start. But there, mm-hmm. this isn't going to be even close to what what's needed. But, um, but I, in in other kind of, ed- and I love the idea that childcare is education, and it's not daycare. It's not a woman's issue. That this is everything. But along the, those lines, education. This weekend we have a, a guest op-ed from Teacher of the Year, Rebecca Peterson, who's from Union, and we love all our Teachers of the Years. But she has a homework assignment. It's election season. I don't know. Do you know it's election season, Bob? Oh, gosh. I thought I heard a rumor yeah. about that. So she but she wrote an interesting piece about basically in, in her very teacher speak, I'm giving homework to the voters. Mm-hmm. And her point, she takes aim at straight party voting, which you don't like straight party voting either, right? No, it's lazy. Okay. We agree on this. So she's taking aim at that and trying to tell voters right now, you've got a little more than a month. Get get to know your candidates. What are the, you know, get past the rhetoric, get past the, the ads and really sit down and say, what do I want in a governor? What do I want in a state superintendent? Even things like corporation commission. Because remember, how many people get into a booth and go, 
oh, I don't know what a state insurance commissioner does. Well, now's the time to find out and actually figure out who you're going to vote for. So that's her homework assignment. But, you know, I am, I've been thinking about this for a while and I don't know what the answer yet, but it's the idea of where do people get information on where to vote? What did, what I, I, cause there's so much information. Yeah. But when you talk to people, where are they getting their information? Ooh, um, answer number one, they're not. Answer number two, Facebook or some other oh, yeah. sort of social, social media. media. Where do you thing. find that out? Social media. Yeah. And Lord knows what you're getting there. And then somewhere a little bit down the list is going to be different kinds of news sources. And not all news sources are created equal. So that is also a potential problem. I so. hate the answer social media. My kids, the kids, the kids, the kids today to say that. I'll be talking to my teenagers and I'll have something. I go, where'd you hear that? Social media, TikTok. Like, can we get, we, who, who are you following on TikTok? What was the source? And so it's this high idea of breaking that down to get to sources that. Well, it ain't just the kids. Oh, I know. It's our I generation, know. it's the generation that's older than us. They're the ones that got duped by a lot well, of the yeah. AstroTurf groups on Facebook and stuff like that. So yeah, it's. It's, it's all of us. It's not a young kid thing. You know, that's a good point. I, you've written about this, and mm -hmm. I know the Pew Research Foundation and some others have shown that actually older people are more susceptible to disinformation than younger kids. Yep. My kids, I think, are cynical by nature, but there are older people that, you know, once it's said on this network or this whatever, it's, it's gold. So yep. it is kind of interesting that Maybe people, older people get set, set in our ways. I don't know, but, you know, but it is sort of something I've been sort of rolling over, but, but Rebecca Peterson makes clear it's up. This is a chance to actually have time now and between now and election day. I mean, we've got, you know, some forums, you've got people giving interviews, you've got all of this, all of these different ways to, to get a hold of it. And if a candidate is not willing to talk to you or not willing to come, you know, be be wary of that. I'm seeing that yeah. a lot. Like, you yeah. know, this whole idea of targeted approach. Like, I'm not going to talk to a greater audience, but I'll target it to these these groups that are usually pretty um, uh, cheerleader kind of groups. So I would be yeah. leery of that. If you, you know, just, that's just me. But, you know, that's my homework. Um, so another serious editorial we have coming up is the the gun violence. Tulsa, we've had a lot of teenagers and young kids die from gun violence. And, and it's now, I, I, it's, it's troubling. And the reasons why are, I think, A, access to guns. Mm -hmm. But two, it's this idea that going back to social media, the law enforcement saying a lot of these beefs get ramped up on social media and they yep. hit the streets with their guns. Part of me is I don't want to just blame some new technology because that goes back. Remember, heavy metal was, you know, and Satanism in the 80s was causing yeah. suicide. And, I mean, yeah. there's always been like video games. <clears throat> I think social media does provide a platform that can get out of hand, but um, but I'm, I'm, I'm obviously I'm a mom. I'm upset about it. You don't have to be a mom to be upset about teenagers dying young, but um, what, what, 
what are your thoughts on that? We, we talked about it as a board. What was your sense of things of where, what do we do about this? Wow. Um, so there's, there's a lot to go with that. <laughs> it's a lot to unpack. Let me talk um, about the social media thing first is a lot of times when we've talked about, you know, what's real and what's not real on social media and people creating personas, it's this type of thing where you look at someone's profile on whatever platform it is and you see all this, you know, oh, my spouse is amazing. And oh, we went on this great vacation and everything like that. And what it is, it turns out to be a somewhat unrealistic facade of what their life is really like because, you know, they got some stuff going on in that household. This sort of falls along those lines in that you've got young people, kids, teenagers getting on social media, um, posting stuff for, with similar motivations. So if I'm constantly posting something on Facebook about, oh my gosh, I woke up this morning with an aching back. Oh, nobody wants to hear that. But if I post a bunch of stuff that has these amazing scenes from the mountains or the beach or whatever, you know, people are smashing that like button. This works in the same way. You've got kids that in their ordinary lives are just ordinary teenagers, but then they'll get together or they'll do something they're on. They're going to post with the gun. They're going to flash a gang sign. They're going to say something that's, you know, going to get a reaction and then they get those reactions. They get those likes, they get those comments and stuff like that. If it would just stay in that ecosystem, that's one thing. But what police are saying is it's not, it's bleeding over in the real life. Somebody feels like they've been slighted. Next thing you know, they're showing up at your doorstep with uh, guns in hand. So that's, one of the things that we were talking about is how as much of a pain in the neck it is parents really need to get on those social media platforms that their kids are on. Sorry if you don't get into TikTok or Snapchat, but you probably need to create an account and see what your kids are doing, see what they're posting. You need to monitor that stuff because between the back and forth that you're going to see, in addition to the content that they put up, you might find the roots of something that could cause some trouble. Um, something else that we talked about too, and you alluded to this was access to guns and I'll narrow that down a little bit further and say firearm security, you know, 25% of the guns that this particular gun crime unit and at TPD that they seize are stolen from cars or some other very readily accessible area where, you know, poaching a gun was no problem. The next thing you know, these guns are involved in some kind of illegal activity. So it's really important for gun owners, you know, I'll just say this as plainly as I can, okay? Don't store your firearm in your car. Even if you lock it, don't do it. It doesn't take 30 seconds for someone to smash a window, look in your center console or glove box, and you got a gun in there, bye-bye, it's gone. It's gonna, and who knows what it's gonna end up doing once it's in someone else's hands. Secure your firearms. Make sure that if you're not handling them, using them, whatnot, that they're in a secure place where they can't be stolen. So, and I think we just generally, as a 
as a community, we've got to be a little bit more involved in this. Uh, someone was talking about how when you've got you've got these great number of activities for younger kids, and then once they get into the workforce or go to college or whatever, there's this gap that if they're not in like high school sports or some kind of a big thing, there's a bunch of idle time for these junior high, high school kids. And, you know, they say idle hands, the devil place, devil's play thing. So, yeah, there's just a, there's a lot of things that we could be doing that we need to double down on. Um, again, the pandemic created a lot of extra stress for children in terms of mental health. And that may be making some of these kids a little bit more on edge as well. So, yeah, I mean, I didn't even think about that because you're right. We, we have a horrible mental health um, situation in, in Oklahoma. We don't have enough, again, providers. We don't, they aren't, we don't have them in schools where they should be. And we also have situations that I've often thought, you know, a lot of you, you talk about this gap of where we lose kids at middle school to early high school. Well, I've experienced, you know, you can't get into a career tech until you're a junior. Why? Why yeah. can't we? I mean, there are kids, and I've talked to, to counselors and to other administrators saying that there are kids, they know their freshman year would be great in a tech program. They're just not doing well with this eight to three kind of situation. Um, certainly by the time they're sophomores, um, you know, you can't get into concurrent enrollment until you're a junior. So we have this sort of area where we're seeing these, these young teenagers that, are kind of lost. And you, we can talk all of the time about after school programs or whatever, but that's not, I mean, we need to really look at what we're providing kids and not providing kids. Mm -hmm. And so that plays in, into that. Um, I will say that, you know, the idea of parents watching social media, because I have teenagers and I, I admit that I don't watch everything they do. I mean, I, I do. Um, and they've never, thank goodness, gotten in trouble. But there are some some of these kids are coming from situations where they're not with their parents. Yeah. They might be with their grandparents. They might be on their own. We've got a lot of homeless youth. So it, while we want to sit there and blame parents, I kind of look at it as a broader kind of issue that we need to sort of watch for others too, because we got a lot of kids out there that are, that are on their own. And when they're in gangs, there's more chaos going on in their lives that you know, it's not, maybe, maybe their parents great. Maybe their parents in jail. I mean, who knows what's going on, but it it's, it's a complex issue, but the editorial lists, all the kids that have died or been arrested and it is just striking. And if people read that and don't think it affects them, they're fooling themselves because we all are affected by this. So, you know, it, it's somber and yes, it deals with guns, but at the heart, gosh, we come back to education and youth all the time, don't we? That we're just losing yeah we're losing some of these kids so you know something else struck me too because the editorial was based on a story that we ran last weekend and kelsey wrote that right yes kelsey yes. Schlachner wrote that i give her credit yes. one of the uh one of the main people that was profiled one of the victims mm -hmm. it would be easy to say oh yeah you know people got upset gang type of stuff uh, someone caught up to him on the BA, shots fired, kid is dead, and just chalk it up as some kind of a gang violence thing. But that kid, as well as all these other kids, was a human being. Mm -hmm. um, we've got photographs of this boy 
when he was like 13 at some kind of like a book event or something like that. I can't remember what it was, but, you know, he was, you know, he was an athlete. He was getting good grades. He was looking at going into college and that kind of stuff. He, he went to good schools. Yeah. yeah. So this, this is not a case of some, you know, stereotypical gangland young man getting gunned down. That's not really the case there. And I think we, we owe it to ourselves not to fool ourselves into thinking that, well, it's relegated to X because that's not right anyway. A person's a person wherever they come from, whatever their background or experiences. But it also just shows you that you get this kind of a toxic mix of stuff that can claim just about anybody. I mean, when that, when that young girl, 18 year old girl was shot at center of the universe. I mean, when I was in high school and stuff, there were plenty of places on a weekend that we'd go and hang out doing stuff and everything like that. Never dreamed of getting gunned down in one of those places. And I'm sure those kids didn't either, but it happened. Well, we're at a whole different, I mean, we have kids worried about getting shot at school. I mean, we're in a different environment and for people who aren't around kids a lot. Um, it's not like it was you know, 30 years ago, certainly not even, you know, going back even further and, and it can scare older people, but, you know, we have an obligation to help fix that and to make that world better for them. So we're not having this. Yeah. And, um, and to kind of switch gears a little bit, the things that drive me crazy is that we're not, our leaders aren't so much, our elected leaders in this campaign season are getting so caught up in the culture wars that they're ignoring these real things. And speaking of the culture wars, we're ending Banned Books Week. I wrote about that earlier this week because uh, of the Norman teacher that shared the QR code to the Brooklyn Library. I called the Brooklyn Library because yeah. I said, hey, did y'all know that you're sort of a symbol of free speech in Oklahoma? And they said, yeah. And they said, but we're, and I said, you know, some people are real, you know, um, you know, I said, they, they, they say that you're showing porn. They're like, we're not showing pornography. We're just, they picked out the challenged books on the, the you know, the most challenged books and promote that. And, uh, but they said they're fine taking the hit. But, you know, I just started thinking, you know, these culture wars just get in such the way of things. And, and, and if we, and my, my whole thing is if we can get kids reading books, let's get them reading books first, then kind of worry about that. Like right now, let's just focus on, these things, but uh, but I did write about Band Book Week, and I started thinking about like what my most like what are and I, I don't know if I've asked you this like what your favorite band book is, what's your favorite challenge book? Have you can you Gosh. think of one that that has that you've liked that has ended up on the the challenge book list? I believe To Kill a Mockingbird was on that list, or is on yeah. some list. Is that one of your favorites? Well, it's a great story, and it has all of the things. I mean, it was very timely when it was written, and it's still timely now of how it dealt with race, justice, family, all those kind of things, and the fact that it could somehow land on some sort of a challenge or ban list is kind of amazing to me. I don't get it. I read uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin when I was in college, and it made a huge effect, um, and it's challenged by the progressives because of the language used and all that, right. but you know, taken at the time was pretty revolutionary because it was, first of all, a book that was from the perspective of a slave 
at a time when, you know, this was during slavery when this book was written, but I, I got out of it the, there was a, a character who's a preacher and used, you know, the Bible to justify slavery. Like that's how Harriet Beecher Stowe, the author, she grew up in a religious household. And so she heard a lot of preachers using this. And I remember as, in college going back to the Bible and saying, does this really, and they're real passages, real, you know, writings and just how you can see that perverted into some sort of, you know, moral sin. And so that, that, that's been pushed by the progressives to get rid of, which I think is interesting. So like I say, it comes on both sides, but right now it's just the, the extreme right is taking aim at all LGBTQ books, which is, which is just not only homophobic and censorship, but it's, you know, let, let kids who, who need those books, read those books. Mm -hmm. so they're not porn. Um, so you, and ending this on, on a little bit of a lighter note, mm -hmm. think that Tulsa can be a whitewater um, amusement park? I don't know. You, you, you put forth this idea that what the Arkansas River can be, can be a whitewater destination. I am dubious of this claim, to be perfectly honest, but uh, I've been proven wrong many times before. I am not dubious. And I'll tell you why. Um, for starters, I have seen, I, I went down this week to gathering place uh -huh. on the East bank and I'm seeing the construction that they're doing just South of the new dam and bridge that they're building over there. Uh -huh. So this whitewater flume that they're building, it's not like some little small thing to say, oh yeah, and the water's going to go a little faster down that. Maybe you can scoot your kayak down there for a couple seconds. Uh -huh. It is a major project. They are building river bottom terrain to create this thing that's going to be a lot like rapids. So yeah, it's a big project. They got large earth moving machines down there and they've done a bunch. Uh, it's going to be pretty freaking cool when it's done. But another reason why I think it can happen is it's already happening in Oklahoma City. When Oklahoma City did its big uh, sales tax metropolitan uh, metropolitan area projects thing called MAPS, one of the things they did is they they dammed up a part of the, of the Canadian River that runs south of downtown Oklahoma City. And, you know, if you want to compare the Canadian River which they call through downtown Oklahoma City, the Oklahoma River, to the Arkansas, which we know can be kind of a sandy, silty, mostly sandbar type of thing. It's like comparing the Amazon to, you know, something a lot smaller. You know, the Canadian River is, it's a typical Southern Plains, prairie type of river, not a lot of water in it. They used to have to mow the sandbars in Oklahoma City. Seriously. But they created this big flat water area through a series of dams, not too unlike what they're wanting to do here. Uh, we're doing it on a larger scale. And then a few years later, they created a whitewater, whitewater course there. If they can do that with that little bitty river that's trickling by downtown Oklahoma City, we can do that here with the Arkansas. Trust the me. Well, it's the mighty Mississippi. What do we call it if it's not the mighty Arkansas? The I don't know. We, we got we got to come up with some moniker. Come on, we got we got brand this. So no. you really think we're going to have white water? 
Yes, I do right. think that they that are. That happens. Gonna... You and I are getting on a raft and we're doing this. Oh, heck yeah. So they've got, um, I mean, all you really need is you need water at a higher level that's going uh -huh. over terrain at somewhat of a grade. And that's what they're building right now. I don't think it's going to be as crazy as the stuff that you're going to see in the Rockies or, you know. Yeah, I don't want to do that. I'm not, I think we're pretty clear. I'm not the adventurer that you are. So, <laughs> no, I'm not quite that. I do like a nice, slow kayak down the Illinois. Well, we'll do that too. There'll be that too behind the dam. Uh -huh. um, I'm, and you know, the big reason why I wrote this is I just think there's a ton of potential here. And I know there's some concerns that people have had for, you know, fish migration and stuff like that. But from an outdoor recreation standpoint, there's huge potential for what they're getting ready to do right now. And it sort of builds out this overall portfolio of the things you can do if you want to go outside and just do stuff. You know, water sports was kind of the missing thing. I always thought it was weird that Oklahoma City beat us to the punch on that kind of stuff when we have so much more water available to us than they do there. But they did it. They created it almost out of And I'm thinking, well, shoot, if they can do that here, we should be able to do that. You know, if they can do it that, would be, it would be amazing. And and you talk about recruiting. It's that quality of life things that people, yeah. you know, we talk about, I mean, Oklahoma is losing people. And in this area, in this era of remote work where people can move anywhere they want, um, you know, if we had things like that with the lower cost of living we have, I think it would really attract people. I mean, we already have, as you've talked extensively, you know, we have an urban, you know, wilderness here with, with Turkey Mountain. We have you know, the gathering place, if I were a young family, that alone would be like, this would be cool to live within, you know, yeah. be able to take kids there and just, there are a lot of things. And so these quality of life things can't be, you know, under, under played at all. So, okay. All right. If this happens, you and I in a raft going down the river. Yeah. That or kayak or something. The thing I would add to this too, just to kind of put a, put a bow mm -hmm. on this subject is Tulsa right now is in a position where they can take the best of what Oklahoma City did with the Oklahoma River and what Bentonville has done with its mountain biking trails. All of that is coming into one large outdoor recreation ecosystem right here in Tulsa, not near Tulsa, but in Tulsa, most of it within a few miles of each other. And all of it's going to be interconnected. That is a big deal in terms of quality of life issues, attracting younger people here, giving people things to do besides or seeing a movie or something like that. Now you've got like a bigger set of options for folks to get outside and get active. And I, I am personally very pumped to see what happens here in a few years. Yeah, and I love the idea of the connectivity because that was always frustrating to me when I was younger here, that you we had these trails that were great, but then they would just stop. So the idea that let's and we have this bill crease, although you know it needs more money apparently. But I, if you could take, they had those trails there, connect that into the river parks that connects into yep. the Katy Trail that connect. You know, you go up into all of that. If you that would be cool, like to just say you can link, and then you could detour into the arts district or detour down into. Brookside and to Philbrook. I mean, that would be just a really cool 
unique thing. So absolutely. But again, whitewater. All right. I hope so. I, that I would think be it's going to happen, but... man. It's going to happen. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm back in in the city after a from. Uh, you know, I'll have to just. I'm still decompressing over my whole flight experience. No one likes to be trapped at an airport overnight. Mm. I did get out. I found the last hotel room, I think, in, or my mom found it, in Charlotte. Avoid Charlotte. Telling you right now, whole other story. But anyway, I hope everyone has a good weekend. And I will see you next week, I'm sure. Bob, any That's last good. words? Oh, man. Um, and I hope you enjoyed yesterday. It was so nice and cool. Yeah. Oh, well. It was, yeah, I missed it. So anyway, I hope it stays this way. So anyway, everyone have a good weekend. Bye. Uh.